Welcome to On the Cusp, the podcast that analyzes the new forms of aggression facing liberal democracies and hears from the innovative people at the forefront of countering that aggression. I'm your host, Elizabeth Braw, and I work on these issues as a fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. I invite you to read the new report, Producing Fear in the Enemy's Mind, which discusses how Cold War nuclear-based deterrence can be adapted for gray zone aggression. Yes, it is possible. And yes, the title is a reference to Dr. Strangelove. To receive the report and other AEI news, please subscribe at AEI.org. And you can, of course, follow me on Twitter as well. My handle is very easy. It's Elizabeth Broad. Now, if you've ever interacted with a Microsoft Exchange server, which you have, even if you don't know it, this month has brought extremely unwelcome news, which is an enormous intrusion that seems to be a Chinese espionage campaign. But here is the thing. This kind of activity goes on all the time. This Chinese intrusion seems to have been not a cyber attack, meaning it wasn't designed to destroy anything, but simply to collect information. And the same was true with the solar winds intrusion that was discovered in December. It was massive and and covered many parts of the US government, but it seems to have been a cyber espionage campaign rather than a destruction campaign in in cyberspace. And the US and the UK and other Western countries engage in cyber espionage too, just as they engage in traditional espionage. It's just that in cyberspace, the line between espionage and destruction is extremely thin. And of course, in cyberspace, government-sponsored activities are joined by sundry criminal activities and ones loosely connected to government as well. Cyberspace is a Hobbesian place, or one might call it a cesspit. Now, CESPIT, in case you didn't know, stands for crime, espionage, sabotage, and subversion, perverting internet technology. And it's an acronym coined by my guest, Sir David Oman, who is one of Britain's very best-known securocrats in the most positive sense of the word. You're likely to know him from his past as a director of GCHQ, but he was also the UK's first security and intelligence coordinator and served for many years on the Joint Intelligence Committee. And he has been permanent secretary of the Home Office and had a long tenure at the UK Ministry of Defence that covered the end of the Cold War and the conflicts in the former Yugoslavia. And he even worked on the Falklands War. Today, Sir David is a visiting professor at King's College London. Sir David, welcome. Thank you, Elizabeth. It's a great pleasure to be having this conversation. And it's a great pleasure for me, too, because I'm trying to understand. I think we're all trying to understand what to do about massive espionage campaigns in cyberspace. Now, my own view is that we shouldn't retaliate with massive punishment because we, the West, conduct cyber espionage, too. But clearly, we have to respond somehow. So what to do about incidents like this Chinese intrusion of Microsoft Exchange? Well, we've got to remember that these espionage operations are as old as the internet. So in the 1990s, when it became really one of the premium mediums of communication, people were storing information, communicating information of value. That's when we saw the first major attack on the United States, the Moonlight Maze attack by Russian agencies. And they were looking for information of value. And that was followed not long after by the first of the attacks from Chinese groups, advanced persistent threat groups. To start with, that was very much looking for information of technical value to their growing arms industry. If they they broke into, it is said, they had no reason to disbelieve this by the experts that they broke into 
a number of important networks in the United States, managed to get into the Boeing Corporation that was building the C-17 huge transport aircraft. They stole almost everything by way of technical information on the tests, the trials, the designs. And lo and behold, a few years later, the Chinese version of the C-17 was parked at an air show next to a real C-17. And you just need to look at them to realize where the designs came from. So this kind of espionage activity has been going on. Can you outlaw it by law? No, there's no international law against espionage. And I don't think there ever will be because you'll never get governments to agree on what espionage is. So the onus really is thrown onto the defence. And as you hint, possibly, at making the attacker realise that it may not be in their best interest to go over a sort of unwritten limit of what is reasonable. There's a precedent in the United Kingdom. Back in the days of the Cold War, Soviet espionage in London was getting to an intolerable state. There were so many intelligence officers, some declared, some undeclared, that the security service was run ragged trying to keep tracks of them all. So the prime minister of the day agreed to a mass expulsion, and over 90 of them were thrown out all at once. And that sort of broke the back of that espionage effort. It built up again. But the signal was sent, you know, too much of a good thing here. You have to be exercise some restraint. And during the Cold War, that was a powerful message to send. Today, how do you send the same kind of message that an operation like Solar Winds is just too much? And the additional problem we have is that once you've penetrated the defenses of a network, and you're inside. It may be information you're looking for, but you can leave behind further entry routes to be picked up later on, even if you are discovered. And that would allow the attacker at a later date, if they so chose, to come back inside the networks and leave behind Trojan attacks. They could activate in a crisis. So, and the difference between those two kinds of attack, it's only a few lines of code. So this is a big problem. One approach, which is the approach you might find if you talk to somebody from the insurance industry, would be to say, look at the risk equation. The risk that you run from this kind of activity is the product of three factors. How likely is it that you're going to be attacked? How vulnerable are you? How good are your defences? And then if they do get through the defences, what damage can they then do? And how quickly can you detect them and expel them from the network? And the answer is you've got to do all of those and keep doing it over and over and over again, because you can never relax in this field. That's right. And, And I think in the past decade or so, we have become very good at The third aspect you mentioned, which is improving our security and private companies, even private individuals are much more alert today to the fact that they should exercise cyber hygiene and and be cautious and not click on any suspicious links and, and all those things that we can do. But as you say, another aspect has failed, which is, and it, it, it was bound to fail, which is the pursuit of some sort of international agreement along the lines of the non nuclear proliferation treaty where countries 
would agree to a certain mode of conduct in cyberspace. And it was always, from my perspective, an illusion that it would work because, as you say, governments have, in many cases, no interest in either signing such a thing or adhering to what they've agreed to. So we are left in a situation where the threat of punishment is really our, our best option. But yet, how can you threaten punishment if, if you, as a, as a government, conduct espionage too, even if it's not as blatant? And that's the issue that we face with, with solar winds as well and, and have faced many times over. Yes, I prefer not to talk about deterrence in cyberspace because deterrence for me, having been brought up in the nuclear era, nuclear deterrence developed its own corpus of thinking, its own specialist terms, and some apply and some frankly don't apply in, in cyberspace. We exercise deterrence every time we affect other people's behavior through threatening to impose a potential cost or difficulty on them if they act in ways we don't want. So deterrence is about affecting behavior. So how do you go about influencing someone else not to act in a way you don't want? So you can expose their intentions to criticism and governments don't like to be caught out in espionage. You can try some kinds of influence and nudging, as it's known. You can offer inducements and threaten to withhold those. So in some circumstances, financial sanctions may be something to think about. You can emphasize mutual interdependence. And in some areas of cyberspace, that can be very important. And as you say, you can, in the last resort, you can threaten with consequences that would dominate other considerations. But that's very difficult to do in cyberspace. It's with nuclear weapons, the consequences of getting involved in escalation from armed conflict with a nuclear armed power are so horrendous that it certainly worked during the Cold War, and I believe it works today. That's why we have so much activity in the grey zone coming from Russia, because they know they can't engage in armed conflict, which runs yeah. that risk of escalation. I mean, you could think of it, if you're musically minded, as a scale of D, from D minor detection and exposure to disapproval, to discouragement, deflection, dissuasion, and finally to D major, which is the formal structure of trying to deter by punishment. But I mentioned the deflection. It may be possible with some kinds of attack to deflect the attack in some way. Perhaps the attacker will pick up a poison pill, which will then be rather difficult to digest. That's, if you like, takes you into the realm of offensive cyber activity. You need to be very careful that you're not going to provoke retaliation at that point. But it may be possible to certainly to engage in active defense. That's something the United Kingdom is very heavily engaged in, so that you're not just sitting back on the defensive, waiting for the adversary to come and try and penetrate your networks. You're out there in cyberspace actively seeking out the bad web addresses. You're scanning the cloud to ensure that where there are spear phishing emails being sent out with attachments that will lead the unfortunate victim to 
some website where they'll pick up malware, all these things. So defence needn't be passive. Defence can be really quite active. And that's another avenue that needs to be, needs to be explored. Yes, and, and it can be active and dynamic, not just when something happens, but ideally before something happens in, in signalling that these are the parameters beyond which it would be a bad idea for you to go. And I must say, I love your including the scale of D minor. I have to, after we finish this conversation, I'm going to have to come back to you and, and write down exactly what's, what's included in your D minor scale, because I, I am musically minded. <laughs> I'm going to use your scale. Before we move on to, to your excellent new book, I wanted to ask who, who you think should be part of, of, of this signaling to the other side that this is what we accept, this is what we don't accept. Because from my perspective, the, the challenge that we have in liberal democracies is that our governments are small and, and they can't tell civil society, including the private sector, what to do. But yet we have to communicate collectively, I think, beyond a certain level of intrusion we will accept a certain level of uncertainty in our society simply because we are open societies and, and engage with the world. But just as is the case with traditional espionage, if you take that hospitality too far, it would be a bad idea for you. So can, do you think governments, Western governments, can they include the rest of society in that signaling or, or is it just not possible in, in, a, in a liberal democracy for governments to, to bring the rest of society along in convincing our adversaries that it would be inadvisable to engage in certain behaviour? Well, my own view is this has to be an all-of-nation effort. And it's, of course, it takes a lot of organisation and work to achieve that. But if you take the private sector in cybersecurity, the companies there are already playing a very major part. It was, if I remember right, FireEye that was the first to really break into the open what the Chinese APT1 group was doing by way of cyber espionage, because they had been engaged by major corporations in the United States worried about being breached by attackers and had uncovered the activities of this group. So they published their report. Sorry, it was Mandiant. The two are now the same company, but it was Mandiant who published that first report on APT1. We now have the FBI calling out individuals who've been identified as being engaged in wrongful cyber activity and posting their photographs. Now, they're not going to be extradited back to stand trial, but the mere fact that their identities are known and publicised is for those individuals a penalty. And the more penalties we can add, the better. One of the most important things that we need to do is to have a constructive relationship between the government that has a lot of intelligence on this subject and the owners and operators of the critical national infrastructure, yeah. apart from telecommunications and gas and water networks, because they have to be secured. And they are private companies, they're accountable to shareholders, but they need the information and they have to be persuaded to share with government information, which may be in market terms, very sensitive, but they have yeah. been, they have lost some customer details. For example, the finance sector is probably the most advanced 
you know, the relationship with national cybersecurity authorities, because, you know, that's where the money is. So that's where there has been a concentration of attacking. And the relationship now, I think, is one of trust that governments will look after sensitive information, which companies don't want the market to know, straight off at least. And at the same time, government is able to share classified information with those companies, knowing that it will be looked after. That sophistication of that kind of relationship is not to be underestimated. It takes a lot of effort to build it and to build up trust. In the United Kingdom, we've got a national cybersecurity centre that is now, it's an important part of GCHQ, the old organisation that I used to run back in the mid-90s. And it is a major national asset to have technically extremely competent people who are working with the private sector and indeed giving advice to the public about how to secure information. When I was talking a moment ago about the risk equation, likelihood, vulnerability, and impact, the vulnerability part is important because once the attackers into a network, are they immediately going to find what they're looking for and be able to steal it? And the increasingly companies are recognizing that when it comes to the crown jewels, the test results on a major technical development or perhaps a new drug that Big Pharma has been working on, those results are worth an enormous amount of money to the company. And they are, in a sense, its capital base. So if they lose that information, they're in a potentially a disastrous position. So the answer is you don't keep that information just on the network for anyone in the company to access. You install 24-7 monitoring with the application of artificial intelligence machine learning programs that will detect when somebody who doesn't normally access that information is trying to access that information. You encrypt the information very strongly. Nowadays, I think it would be a very foolish retail company that did not separate out the components of the personal information of its client base so that it wasn't possible just to go in and find you've stolen the credit card details, the addresses and the names and the social nationals insurance numbers. These are things which you have to protect. And if companies don't, of course, now there tend to be rather large fines which can be imposed for carelessness with our data. So you put all of that together. Don't just focus on this classical espionage threat, but put it all together as you know, being safe in cyberspace. And you begin to get more towards what I call the whole and nation effort. Yeah. And as we have seen during the pandemic, even organizations, research institutes, small pharmaceutical companies have discovered, or have not just discovered, they have been actively attacked by organizations, outfits connected to other countries, including North Korea. And and you would think ordinarily a research institute that researches respiratory diseases doesn't feel that much part of a national security effort. But depending on the situation, such an outfit can be a crucial part of it. And not surprisingly, in this case, North Korea and other countries did target such organizations in cyberspace. There's a very good example of that in the original Russian attack, the Moonlight Maze attack, where it was discovered they'd been attacking the National 
oceanographic service. And, you know, these are researchers studying the currents in the ocean, mapping the, the deep ocean and so on. But if you're running a submarine force, knowing where the currents are the within under which submarines can hide is extremely valuable. But that was an example where some very basic research results were the attackers were trying to get hold of. So yes, I think the if you have information that's of value and you need to think about well who could benefit from that information. Yes. The Chinese attack on the Office of Personnel Management in Washington is a classic because the Office of Personnel Management is, as it says, has the records of US government employees, past and present. It actually has the vetting records of those employees, including employees who are working in the intelligence community or parts of the intelligence community. It did not clearly think of itself as being an agency that had a high risk of being attacked, because it was just simply dealing with yeah. personal details. It was attacked, and a very large number of records were taken by the Chinese. In the same way, Equifax, the credit company, again, lost very large amounts of personal detail of US citizens by the Chinese. What was that in aid of? Has any of that information since appeared on the web for sale, dark web for sale? No, it's probably a counterintelligence operation trying to build up a database of US government employees and drawing on their vetting records so that when individuals do turn up, the Chinese government will know, aha, yes, that's somebody who has a past in American public service. So that's another example where almost any information can be turned to use if you're determined enough and you take it. That's right. And being an unglamorous organization is, doesn't mean that you won't be targeted. In fact, you're likely to be targeted when, when your area is of interest, which leads us to another area I really want to discuss with you, which is how we can learn to better understand what our adversaries may think up. And if we, in other words, need to learn like spies, which is also the title of your new book, which doesn't suggest we should all become like spies, by the way, published by Penguin and available in, in all the usual places, including on the internet for, for those who'd like to buy it. But what you're proposing is that we should we should use the mindset of people in the intelligence community to better understand the world in which we live. So what is it that, that spies have in their mental approach that the rest of us could benefit from trying to develop? The Intelligence community you know, produces assessments for government, and the intention is to improve the quality of decision-making by reducing the ignorance of the decision-maker. Elon Musk, the world's richest man, is reported to have said, when I have about 70% of the information I think I need, at that point I take my decision, which may well be right. But most of us start off well below that. We don't really know what we're facing. And the great skill of the intelligence analyst, and it's something we can all apply to everyday decisions, business decisions, is to unbundle, to break the outputs from rational thought into, I think, four components. So 
do we really know what's going on? Can we answer the questions about what, where, and when? And I call this situational awareness. Whether it's in cyberspace or in the real world, do we really have the facts we need? And indeed, are we sure that those are genuine facts? If we got them from social media, some of them are going to be fake. So detecting deception is an important part of that. But facts aren't enough. You have to explain facts. And the second output you need from thinking is an explanation of why you're seeing what you're seeing. And that's quite hard because it may involve trying to get inside somebody else's mind about why they're behaving in that particular way. Why do we see this difference over time, whatever it might be? So explanation of facts is essential. Facts don't speak for themselves. We all know, if you've studied statistics, that correlation is not causation. So what has caused? Then if you've got a decent explanation and you've got a reasonable grip on the situation, you can begin to lean forward and start to estimate how things might evolve, what's likely to happen next. And then you can begin to model. You can say on certain assumptions about how the adversary will respond. If we were to do X, we think it's likely that the adversary will respond with Y. That kind of modeling, we see it all the time with COVID-19. If you impose this kind of lockdown measure, this is the effect that the scientists think will be felt on rates of transmission, shall we say. So those first three, S-E-E, situational awareness, explanation, estimation, is what we, do, we should be doing every time we face a major decision. But my experience has taught me that whilst your head's down trying to answer a question like that, something unexpected comes and hits you on the back of the neck. So you need that 360-degree vision. I call it strategic notice of the next major challenge that's likely to come so that you don't become obsessed with the decision right in front of you, but you think about some of these longer-term risks that might come and challenge you. Put those four together and you get my acronym SEES, S-E-E-S, Situational Awareness Explanation, Estimation, and Strategic Notice. So that's how spies think. And as you say, that's something that we should all at least try to develop. The point, though, is for people with with some sort of responsibility that they can't afford to think in that strategic perspective, because especially if they are involved in policymaking, there is the expectation that they will always respond very quickly to whatever comes up. And, And one of my concerns in our Western societies generally is short-termism, and it's nobody's fault. It's just a result of a constant public scrutiny of anybody in a position of power and where it would be also very difficult for them to explain why they may seem to take no action on a particular issue, even though it it benefits a strategy in in the longer term. So do spies have an answer or an approach that would suit us in, in that context as well? Yes, you're absolutely right. If you think of any major decision, it doesn't really matter if it's being taken by the president or the prime minister or any of us, a big life decision, whether to move house or what partner to choose to settle down with, whatever it might be. There are two 
kinds of thinking that we have to bring together in our own minds, in a single mind, be it, I say, the president or the prime minister or any of us. You have the emotional side. Why do you want to take this decision? Or what is it do you fear that you think that taking the decision will, will help with? And there you have to know yourself to know, are you perennially optimistic and therefore likely to overdo the sense of I must act now? Are you perhaps overdriven by the media? Do you fear bad media if you take a little longer over this decision? Are you under pressures of various kinds of financial pressures, for example? So you have the emotional side, and that's values-driven. That's very much about what you want it to be and what it ought to be, in your view. But then you've got the other side that I was just talking about, the rational analysis of the situation based on solid information about what is going on, your explanation of it, your estimation of how things will unfold if you take this decision or that decision, or what options are open to you. And you need to bring both of those together. And the big problem, and this is really what is, drove me to write the book, the big problem is the emotional side is dominating far too much over the rational. It's partly a function of social media and the semi-hysteria you get on social media. It's partly the day-to-day -day pressures that are on government that force short-termism. But whether we're taking a personal decision or whether it's government taking an important decision, you have to have the time to bring together and to understand why you're wanting to take this decision, the emotional side, but also make sure you have this rational, rational assessment. And in Certainly in the United States and in the United Kingdom, we separate out the decision makers and the policy makers on the one hand, and their professional advisors, whether they're intelligence analysts or whether they're scientists or doctors or the generals, they are producing professional advice. It's the policymakers' job to bring that together with their very legitimate sense of responsibility for the decision and their hopes and fears. What you don't want to see is what I describe in the book with some examples as magical thinking, where the policymaker simply goes on the air, makes bold pronouncements about what is to be, but without having this solid analytical work done about how you're actually going to deliver it on the ground. And there we have it, the clash between short-termism and knee-jerk reaction on one hand and magical thinking on the other hand. And what we need is that space in between, which is where we as analysts, but especially decision makers, need to learn to think like spies. And, and for those who already try to think like spies, I guess the answer is to improve those skills even more. Once again, Sir David Ullman's book is How Spies Think. Thank you so much, Sir David, for covering two decades and more of cyber confrontation, the D minor scale, the cesspit, seas, and everything in between. And thank you also to our producers, Anya Terrell and Olivia Leslie, as ever. You can follow us on Apple and Spotify and subscribe and comment as you wish. And of course, you can comment to me on Twitter as well. And thank you all for listening. And thank you once again, Sir David Oman, for being such 
an engaging and wise guest. Thank you, Elizabeth. It's been a pleasure.